Good to see you guys. Um, we usually move into a time of prayer and fellowship, kind of loving on one another through prayer. We're not going to do that tonight. I'm going to jump right into the teaching because we are going to be watching a film. Am I still, is my microphone still on? Can you guys, can you guys hear me? We have assistance. Okay, all right, there we go. We're going to move after the teaching into a time, uh, we're going to watch a video on the ministry in Haiti that we are intimately involved with. And so I'm going to get right into it, and then Blake Carter is going to come up and set up that video, and Springer will end our time together. So um, let me give you just a quick overview of where we are going tonight. So if Josiah, if you could throw the outline up there to orient folks on the, the, the flow of tonight. Last week, uh, Robert looked at, and we've been looking at the five solas of the Reformation. Five sola, meaning the five alones, the five... Uh, truths that came out of the Protestant Reformation in 15, which was started in 1517. And the reason why we're doing it this year is because this is the 500th anniversary. This October 31st will be the 500th anniversary of when a young German monk named Martin Luther began to read the Bible and Galatians primarily and then Romans and saw the gospel afresh that had been obscured through really faulty doctrine that had built up for years in the church and kicked off by by tacking a note on a chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany with a protest against the theology of the Catholic Church called the 95 Thesis, and that began the Protestant Reformation. And, and then the decades that followed, these five truths that, we, that Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone were these five rallying truths of the Protestant Reformation. And so in honor of the 500th anniversary, we're looking at these five, hundred, these, these five truths. Last week, Robert started us with a look at the, the, the doctrine or the first sola, sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase meaning scripture alone is our highest and only authority. And that's a necessary first truth because really the battle of the Reformation was over a battle at its core over the authority of God's word over and against the Pope and the church. And so we started with, with uh, Sola Scriptura. This week, kind of the next sort of in the order of just logic there, is this idea that we are saved by grace alone. So we're going to get into three. The next three weeks, we're going to look at grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And when we say those things, it's really important that we say them together. They're really, those things go together. We are saved by grace alone, but that grace gives us faith. And so then we are saved then by faith, through faith, in Christ alone. So really these next three weeks are kind of one larger discussion and ultimately it's all for the glory of God alone. And so we're going to look at these uh, sequentially in the coming weeks. So let me just state up here just so you kind of see a historic, an overview of our, of our night tonight. We're going to look at a quick, brief, fast, big fire hose, little mouth historical overview. So we're going to take about um, 1,700 years and put them in about three minutes. Then we're going to zero in, which is always wise, and then we're going to zero in on some scriptures that will give us a biblical picture, a biblical doctrine of grace, and then if we have time, we'll get into some challenges and applications that we face today. So what is, what is this, what, what do we mean when we say that we are saved by grace alone? Well, we've been working through Romans, right? And so um, you would discourage me greatly if you didn't at least have a handle on what we mean by we're saved by grace alone. And it's really found just in Paul's letter in Romans 3 where he talks about how we have been propitiated 
We have been saved by Christ's work and not our work. And so the doctrine of grace alone is saying that it's not anything in the creature that makes the person, the creature, right with God, but it is God's work, the work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bringing about the salvation of God's people. And he does that through grace, not by anything in the creature, not by our works. And then grace gives the gift of faith, whereby then the creature, because grace has come and freed them from sin, they are now enabled to exercise the faith that they've been given in the person and work of Christ, who alone has secured their salvation on the cross. And all of this happens for the glory of God. So let's, let's, let's skim over centuries and centuries of church history and some really, really uh, interesting theological uh, just development by going back to the late 300s, early 400s. So we're in the 5th century now, the early 400s, and there was this very significant man in the history of the church, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say that. I, I just naturally say Augustine. He was the bishop of the church in North Africa. He was an African man, and he was one of the greatest minds in the history of the church. He revolutionized, really, uh, really set the trajectory for good doctrine for years to come. Augustine, though, in his younger years, was a very sinful young man, driven by lust, uh, driven by just giving himself over to the pleasures of the flesh, had many, many uh, lovers outside of marriage. And he had this incredible conversion experience when he was actually reading a verse out of Romans that talked about putting away the flesh. And he was in a garden, and he, he heard this little child, whether it was actually something that he heard or whether it was just the Holy Spirit, I don't know. But he heard a little child saying, take up and read, take up and read. And so he thought that that was the Holy Spirit speaking to him to go get his Bible, to take it up and read it. And so he opened up his Bible. He played Bible roulette. And the Holy Spirit was involved and opened him to Romans chapter 15 where it says, put away the flesh, make no provision for the flesh, and give yourself to Christ. I'm paraphrasing. And that verse instantly changed Augustine's life. Well, later on in the early 400s, middle of his life or so, he wrote one of the most significant books in the history of the church called Confessions. And it was basically his autobiography where he was reflecting now as this great theologian, this bishop of North Africa, this leader in the church, he was reflecting on his own conversion and he was piecing things together. And you know how we have like Wayne Grudem's systematic theology or John Calvin's institutes or, you know, all these great theological works. Well, we're, we're talking, we're in the late 300s, early 400s. Things have not really been crystallized so much and there's not these great works that the church can refer to. And Augustine's autobiography, as he looks back on his conversion, the first half of Confessions is kind of like him telling his story. And then the second half of, conversion, of uh, Confessions, did I say conversions earlier? I meant Confessions. The second half of it is him sort of systematizing, thinking about what happened to him experientially, which became a kind of doctrinal statement. And Augustine realized, he realized the pervasive and deadly nature of sin. Augustine really categorized for us biblically that sin doesn't just inhibit us, but it actually kills us spiritually. And he saw a text like we're going to read in just a moment about how sin 
it killed us, and it rendered us unable to do anything right with God. And in his book, Confessions, Augustine wrote a word, a phrase that infuriated some people at his time, in particular, a man named Pelagius. And this is what Augustine said. We have it on the screen, that first quote there. Augustine said, grant what you command and command what you will. Now stare at that sentence for a second. What is Augustine saying? He's saying, he's really crying out to God for faith, for salvation, for grace. And he's saying to God, grant the very thing that you command from me is something that you are going to have to give to me. And so what he's saying is, is that what, what I need to make myself right with God does not reside inherently in me. God requires something of me. He commands it, but he's going to have to give me the very thing that he commands. Well, Pelagius was a very smart man, and he instinctively saw the corner that Augustine was boxing humanity in by this statement in his autobiography, Confessions. And Pelagius said, no, this this is not the truth. But in fact, mankind is free and mankind, sin has not done that to mankind. And mankind is in a a kind of neutral state. And Pelagius disagreed with everything that we would have said when we preached a few weeks ago on Romans chapter 5 about how Adam's sin was inherited, how we as people have inherited Adam's sin. And Romans 5.12 says that in Adam, all of us die. And Pelagius would have disagreed with that. And he said, no. Certainly Adam and Eve fell, but human sin did not, did not, was not passed on. And so he believed in a kind of neutral state, a kind of freedom, a sort of, a sort of neutrality of each new human. He granted that, yeah, yeah, most, in fact, all of us, have, we kind of mess it up too, but he did not believe in this inherited sin nature. And that actually caused the church in, in some, a few synods and councils in the 400s and 500s to brand him a heretic. And his views became known what we now call Pelagianism, which is this idea that mankind is not inherently by nature sinful. He has not inherited the sinful nature of his first parents, Adam and Eve. That is theologically wrong. And the church forever has, has, has branded that a heresy. Well, even though it was branded a heresy, the church begins to develop, and Pelagianism kind of still creeps in through, you know, these these doors in the church, and we find ourselves in the 1400s, 1500s, and even though the church uh, a a thousand years earlier had had called Pelagius' ideas about the neutrality of a human soul heresy, it really was kind of the dominant thinking at the time because through a whole bunch of things, which are too much for us to get into tonight, the Catholic Church had developed a kind of system of works whereby a person would make themselves right with God, not by, free grace, by the free grace of God. And so Luther then stumbles upon Augustine, and he stumbles upon Galatians, and he stumbles upon Romans, and he captures this idea of the fact that mankind is sinful and that our only hope is something outside of us, the grace of God. And Luther starts to write these things. And then there is this humanist philosopher at the time, and his name is Erasmus. And the Catholic Church knows that Erasmus is a great mind, and they want Erasmus to respond to the things that Luther is teaching. Luther is teaching that mankind is inherently sinful and that something must happen to him from the outside 
grace in order for him to be brought back to life so that he can respond to God. In fact, Luther wrote a book that, again, like Confessions, wrote a thousand years earlier by Augustine, is one of the most significant books in the history of the church, and it's called The Bondage of the Will. And Luther, I think, rightly saw biblically that mankind is not born free, that our will after the fall is not free, but it is enslaved. In a sense, it's free. We're free to do whatever we want to do. We're free to operate out of the desires of our heart, but our hearts by nature now are not neutral, but they're fallen and they're enslaved. And so we are not free to willingly on our own choose God. So Luther writes the bondage of the will. Erasmus disagrees with him, and he writes a thing called the diatribe on the freedom of the will, and this really intensified the debate in the Protestant Reformation. And Luther says this line in, uh, I don't think this is in the bondage of the will, but he says this line that is really, really important, and it's really, he's really standing on Augustine's shoulders. So from the early 400s all the way to the 1500s, this is what Augustine says. He says, and we got it up here, Next quote, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. So do you see how that's similar to what Augustine has said? Augustine has said, look, you you require something of me, God, and I'm going to need you to give it to me. And and, and Luther is saying that the love of God, or we can even think of the salvation, the grace of God, doesn't, it's not like God is looking for, grace is not God looking for people who are kind of showing themselves to be acceptable or good candidates, but the love of God, the grace of God, the saving grace of God creates what it wants, what it pleases. And that's, again, one of the great truths of the Reformation called grace alone. So let's look at it in the Bible. Let's, let's anchor ourselves for just a moment in Ephesians chapter 2, where we get this phrase from. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Hopefully this is familiar to you. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And so you can't really separate out grace and faith. And we're going to talk about the relationship between grace and faith in just a second. But grace and faith go together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul here is clearly saying that it's that we're saved not by our works, but by grace. And then let's back up to what we've been going through here in Romans chapter three. Let's let's dig back into Romans three for just a second, where Paul says about grace. In Romans chapter three, verse twenty-one, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So that's he's talk, speaking about the Old Testament. The righteousness of God, and remember the righteousness of God in, in, in Paul's early chapters in Romans isn't speaking about the righteousness that God inherently has in himself, although clearly he has all righteousness. But it's the righteousness of God that is ours when we have faith. So what we need as sinful human beings who have fallen, we are separated from God, and the only way that sinful human beings can be brought back into the presence of an all-holy God is through righteousness. And so what Paul is saying here is, now how will people be made righteous? The righteousness of God 
through faith, in other words, that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you see this, again, this clear statement that Paul is saying that we are made right with God by grace, not through anything that we do. And this grace with it inherently is faith that then enables the unbelieving person to put their hope in Jesus. So you see how these three things go together as a kind of, they're inseparable. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. So you, you see these are important, but these are really hallmark texts on grace. Now, then these texts led to a debate during the time of the Reformation, between, and, uh, and it, it, let me say that I'm not a big fan of labels, but I think that sometimes they can help us kind of understand sort of where different people are coming from. So let me paint with some broad brushes here. Sort of two camps emerged out of the Protestant Reformation theologically. One camp would be the, uh, would be the uh, Arminian camp that comes from a man named Arminius, Jacob Arminius, who uh, who, who was uh, a Reformed theologian but disagreed with some of the things that men like John Calvin were saying about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then the other camp would be Reformed or the Calvinistic camp. And so I know that those monikers kind of follow people's names and some people get nervous about that, but don't get too nervous about that. Those are just descriptions of these two different camps. The Arminian camp began to look at the grace of God in the Bible and everybody would agree like, yes, we are sinful. All of the Protestant reform, Reformation, Reformed theologians would agree, okay, we clearly see in the Bible that the Catholic view of salvation, of grace, is wrong. And the, what the Catholic Church was teaching at that time, and still to some degree does teach this day, that the way a person receives grace is through sacraments, like the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, like one of them being baptism, one of them giving to Rome, one of them being marriage, not that everybody has to be married, but what the Catholic Church is saying is that grace is mediated, is given, is infused, transferred through something a person does. In this case, like infant baptism. Or like the last rites right before a person dies. And so do you see what's happening is the Catholic Church is very unbiblically developing this system where grace comes by, through what somebody does, which isn't grace at all, right? And so that's one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation took fire is these reformers saw rightly in the Bible that no, grace is grace. It's not anything that we do. We're dead in our sins. And so both of these Protestant camps, the Arminians and the Calvinistic uh, branch saw that we were dead in our sins, but now they had a dilemma. What do we, well, how does grace actually save a dead person? And there were two different views of grace that came out of the Protestant Reformation. One was this idea of prevenient grace. And that word prevenient is a word that means grace that comes before, okay? So let's prevenient grace right here in this category for the, for the Arminian side. And the Calvinistic side had the idea of, had the concept of grace as being irresistible. And I think that's an unfortunate word. I think a better word would be the word effectual. It's effective. So let's look at these two different um, views of grace. The prevenient view of grace 
viewed grace, recognized that all mankind is dead in their sins and doesn't have anything inside of them to willingly respond to God. And so it viewed grace as preparatory, that God universally gives all mankind a prevenient or a kind of preparatory grace that enables them to the degree that they are now enabled to make a decision to either put their faith in Christ or to not put their faith in Christ. And I actually think that's the predominant view of most of modern American evangelicalism. It's a kind of preparatory grace that enables a person to then decide whether or not they will have faith in Jesus. So again, see the logic. So in that that view, we're saying, okay, we're saved by grace. That's our view of grace. And then grace gives you the opportunity for faith, which then you either exercise or don't exercise in Christ. So we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. The Reformed view, or the the Reformed or Calvinistic view says, no, people are dead in their sins, and that when God intends to save a person, and this is part of a whole host of other, I think, biblical truths, that God has elected a great number of people from every tribe and tongue and nation for salvation, that he guarantees, he guarantees that he effectively draws them to himself, and he makes them alive, and he gives them the very thing that they need, and when the saving grace, as opposed to just kind of the common grace that God gives all mankind by making the sun come up and the rain fall, the saving grace, the particular grace of God on his people that he has predestined in eternity past is always effective, and it will always work, and it will bring that person to life, and with that new life comes the gift of faith that they then exercise in Christ, okay? So that's kind of the two dominant views of grace. Now this view, the prevenient view, feels more fair. But I actually think this view over here is actually more biblical. The problem with this view is, just think with me conceptually now, is that when prevenient grace resuscitates a person who's dead in their sin to the point where they are now enabled to either exercise faith or not exercise faith in God, And let's say Dave exercises his faith in God, but Bob doesn't. We're all kind of satisfied with that because, oh, it seems kind of, but why why did Dave exercise his, why why did Dave exercise his faith in God and Bob didn't? Well, you say, oh, well, Dave decided. Yeah, but then you're forced in this prevenient view of grace to confess, admit that there's something in the creature that kind of finalizes salvation. Do you sort of see that? And I know, I'm, I know I'm like blowing over some stuff and you may have questions and we can talk later. Actually, I gotta get some kids home after this, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of blow out of here too, but I'm not dodging your questions. We can talk about this until the day is on. But do you see the sort of the, the biblical and philosophical problems with that? Because then that little bit is done by the person and then ultimately we get to the end and it's really not the, all the glory of God. Salvation is 99% God and 1% my activation. And where did that faith come from? Oh, well, God gave it. well, if God gave that to Dave, why didn't he give it to Bob? And so I think rightly, even though this is humbling, I think the, the right view biblically is this idea of that saving grace as opposed to just the common grace that God gives all men. Saving grace is always effective. And let me, let me read to you from John chapter six to just kind of show you what I think is going on here. Because some of you, I'm sure, have problems 
with that acrostic tulip, the five points of Calvinism, and the I there, T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance or preservation of the saints. And you see that verse, that word irresistible grace, and you think, ah, that just seems so like God, what does God just conk people over the head and drag them off? You know, I, no, that's an unfortunate way. I, I think somebody just needed like an acrostic, and so they, they just kind of needed the, the I. I think a better way to look at grace biblically is to call it effective. When God determines to save a person, and he's done that in eternity past, and clearly biblically he's not determined to save everybody, and that's his business, his grace is always effective. So I think irresistible is a kind of unfortunate term. It makes us think that God just drags like people, you know, to, to himself that, 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 no, everybody's running away from God and God effectively saves a great multitude of people. So let's see what Jesus says in John chapter six. Let me show this to you. And then I'm going to be, I'm going to wrap this thing up because I want you to see this video on Haiti. Jesus says this in John six, verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now listen to verse 37. Just kind of read it slowly and think about it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who's all that? I think it's all those that as we read about, like in Ephesians 1, all those that the Lord has adopted and foreknown, foreloved before the foundations of the earth, all those all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Because you can see what Jesus maybe is anticipating even in that one sentence. People, when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And somebody's saying, well, what if I'm coming to Jesus and I'm not one of the ones that, that, that he's given to you? And Jesus is saying, no, no, if you're coming to me, if you're coming to me, that's, you're mine. Do you see that, how Jesus is mixing those two beautiful things together, but undergirding it all is the fact that God must draw you, and when God draws you, it always works. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. So you see Jesus' explanation of grace there. It's very definitive. It's very certain. And so in that sense, it's irresistible in a beautiful sort of way. Not in a conch you over the head, but when you see an object that is so beautiful. This is how, this is how God woos people. This is how God saves people by grace. Is he doesn't just whack them over the head. He causes their dead hearts to become alive so that now their will that was enslaved is now freed to behold the greatest beautiful object of the universe, which is Jesus, when viewed rightly, is irresistible because he's so beautiful. And now then that draw of that newly made alive heart now believes that's faith in Christ alone who's actually accomplished our salvation on the cross. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see that? I think that's the beautiful truth of the uh, Reformation truth that we are uh, united, that we are saved by grace alone. And, and let's not think of grace, let's not think of grace as a kind of thing, as like a, a, an, a commodity in the Christian life. Grace is Christ. 
all of this, all of these, these truths of the Reformation, all of this doctrine is bound up in the person and work of Christ. And it really relates to everything that we've been talking about these last few Sundays in Romans 6, that we get all this because we are united to Christ. Because we're in Christ. All these things are ours. And so grace is ours because Christ is gracious. Faith is ours because Christ has made us alive. And salvation is ours because Christ has, has bore our sin and rose again in victory over the grave. And we see this, I think, in the life of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus comes up to his tomb and he says, get up. And Lazarus is now that he has been made alive. He is enabled to have faith and respond to what Jesus has said. And he gets up. So think about this phrase for just a second. We are not born again because we have faith. We have faith because we've been born again. I think that's the essence of grace. Do you see that? Do you see what you follow the logic? Let me say it again. We are not born again because God is responding to some prior thing in us called faith. We're dead in our sins. The Reformation clearly delineated that. But now we're dead, we're made alive, and simultaneously with new life comes the gift of faith, whereby then because we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that's grace, now we're enabled. We are freed from the enslavement of the will to behold Christ, that's faith, and we trust in him and are justified. I think that's the biblical teaching of grace. Application, present day challenges, I don't have time for it. So I'll let you work that out on your own. Uh, I love to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, and he would, he, would, he would preach, and he'd preach for like 50 minutes, and he said, and you're going to have to work out the implications of that on your own. So I want us to give uh, full, full shrift to, um, to, to, uh, to this Haiti video. So um, let, me, let me pray, and then Blake is going to come and, uh, and introduce this video for us. And, but before he does, I just got to get, I'm a preacher, I'm long-winded. Do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see what's at, do you see what's at, 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 at issue here? Regardless of what you may think about the sovereignty of God and all these things and John Calvin and Jacob Arminius and Pelagius and Augustine and Luther and all that, those things don't get tripped up. Irresistible grace, prevenient grace. Do you see what's at issue here? What issue is not theological categories and doctrine, but the creature, the persons looking away from themselves into God. So whether, wherever you fall on that spectrum, what I am jealous for, what we are jealous for as pastors, is that we as a church would say that there's nothing in me that has caused me to be right with God, but it's solely by faith, by grace alone, and faith alone in Christ alone, because what is at stake here is worship. And when you see this, it shouldn't just cause you to just have a little doctrinal category and smoke a pipe and read John Calvin. It should cause you to be humbled and worship God because he alone has decided to love us and give us grace, not because we're middle-class Americans and we're good candidates of it, but because he loves us. And he loves us because he loves us. 
And if he didn't start loving us because nothing in us, but solely because of his free grace, then that means he won't stop loving us because of anything in us, which then should cause us to fight sin with the assurance that comes from knowing that we're in Christ. And I, I think that's important. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, um, help us understand grace better for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.